Jennings and this is the 24 Framescast and I would like to begin by wishing you all a happy new year. Um, actually had a decent New Year's Eve this year for once where normally I just stay in and go to bed about half ten. Uh, actually managed to stay up to a whopping half past twelve. Um, had a f- f- dinner party, actually made all the food and it seemed to go all right. No one seems to have died of food poisoning. So um, I'm going to take that as a good omen for the year to come, even though obviously in these COVID afflicted times when various strains of COVID are going around that are increasingly beginning to sound like Marvel supervillains. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to get through 2022 relatively unscathed and I hope you're all well and keeping fit. And I've decided to kick off the new year with a new type of show on this podcast and it's one that's been inspired, kind of just dating I, I suppose, um, a while for quite some time so I'm just going to introduce it now. So for many of you who know that I live and work in Manchester and it's a wonderful city and a great place to live. And I moved here in tw- tw- 2003 um, from a small village in Kent. And it was one of those things that when you're young, I-, I was 23 at the time, I was a bit bored and I wanted to stretch my wings a bit. And it paid off. It was one of those life decisions for me that really, w- looking back, it-, it was one of the best things I've ever done. And I fell in love with Manchester in so many different ways. Um, and in particular, I've noticed how much this city has changed in the time that I've been here. And the city centre itself is in a near constant state of renewal. Um, blocks of flats going up, office blocks, new football stadiums. The city skyline has been transformed in the 19 years that I've lived here. And every now and then you get glimpses into Manchester's past and in the buildings I go by on on the pavement or looking out of a bus or a tram window. And in particular, there's one type of building that always catches my eye. And more often than not, the ones that you see will look a tad out of place. There's either overly ornate uh, brickwork, um, art deco curved to the front. Sometimes it's just larger than normal with a roof pointing up into a large wedge. And these buildings are a reminder of Manchester's past. For these are its now empty cinemas, many of which have been torn down, but some have survived. And although their use now range from churches to pound stores to pubs, they are, I think, a very tangible reminder of this city's cinematic past. Currently, Manchester has four cinemas, the Printworks being the most successful cinema outside of London with an enormous IMAX and it's either there or the home art centre that I take most of my screenings. Yet this was not always the case because Manchester used to have in the region of about 150 cinemas. And of course, this amount would vary year on year, but it was almost in almost every district of the city, there would be at least one. It seems in its heyday in the 50s and 60s, you would never have been really far away from one of those hallowed grounds. And I think we have emotional connections to cinemas. It's not just the films that we see in them, but often it's the memories of the people we went with. Old friends, girlfriends, boyfriends, some we no longer talk to, or perhaps now some people we're even married to. And visits to the cinema are a great way of remembering time and place. A-levels, university, whatever. I remember seeing Lawrence of Arabia at the now-closed Corner House Cinema in Manchester, which became home, um, albeit in a slightly different location, and emerging into a beautiful spring sunshine and walking along the canal back to my house in Old Trafford. 
It was for reasons I simply can't understand, a perfect day, and for some reason I felt a kind of peace. I was thinking about the film, the beautiful weather, and would cap things off in a pint in my local before going home. And I still think about that day from time to time. And whenever I walk past a corner house, which is now empty, I remember every detail of going to the film and walking home. And indeed, if you look at the comments section on the Cinema Treasures website, which keeps a kind of a running tab on cinemas that are open and closed and demolished, you will see people leaving messages about how seeing the building again triggers a random memory. A group of friends seeing a poster for Robocop's three outside the Cine City Cinema in Withington, Manchester, and then having a long chat about the Robocop franchise on their bus journey home, or a projectionist reminiscing about a packed screening of Lord of the Rings. The ability of cinema to trigger some form of nostalgia is something to behold, and yet I think there is a side to this that also reminds us that we are actually getting older. And a familiar story in the life of a cinema is this. The cinema is built sometimes as a theatre, sometimes as just purely a cinema, embeds itself into the fabric of the local community, changes hands repeatedly, sometimes goes independent, sometimes becomes part of a chain, undergo refurbishment from being a single cinema to two or three or even five screens or whatever, and as time goes by, slowly die a death where they're converted into a bingo hall before eventually being closed and left to rot. Sometimes the buildings become something else, a supermarket, a timber merchant, a pub. Some mysteriously burn down, others go on for a far more protracted death. They sit empty and fair, slowly fall into disrepair and often are eyed enviously by property developers, sometimes even talk of them returning in some form of their former glory. Then comes the news, they're finally to be torn down, Facebook mobilises, a friends of such and such a place suddenly appears. Surely people protest this empty building has some form of value, surely as it's a listed building, but no. The time comes and when they disappear for good, and it's normally a depressing sight. The Odeon on Oxford Road in Manchester was a particularly gruelling sight to watch go. Watching it being raised to the ground, a once epic picture house reduced to rubble by hungry looking diggers. And incidentally, in this case, this was a cinema that was modernised from being a 3,000-seat cinema to being tripled in 1972 and a further four screens in 1992. And the addition of these effectively sealed the Odeon's fate. As catering towards the multiplex-style cinema, much of the original features were stripped away and rendered any attempts at having it listed completely null and void. And when this happens, I think it triggers a real nostalgia and a sense of loss in people. And of course, that doesn't necessarily mean sadness, although it may. But I think it's a very timely reminder that time is moving on and the past is the past and it's not coming back. In a couple of generations, no one will know that the Odeon on Oxford Road ever existed. Indeed, many will see the huge office block that replaced it and barely glance at it and get on with their lives. It's progress and it's just how life is. And indeed, that generation may see one of their cinemas closed and replaced and on it goes and on it goes. So in terms of this podcast, what does all that mean? Well, I've decided that I'm going to random, well, well, what it means is I've decided that I'm going to pick a cinema, now demolished or closed, anywhere in the world, research its history and as much as I can, give a kind of a biography of its life and times and then with the aid of archive photos 
pick one film that I can see being advertised either on a poster or on the hoarding outside the cinema and review it. And I'm going to be selfish with this one and possibly the next one too. And I've decided that the cinema I'm going to pick for this episode was the one where I spent a good portion of my younger life and that was the Maidstone Granada Cinema. I grew up in, as I mentioned before, in Kent in a small village called Headcorn that had three pubs, one of which was awful, so technically only two. And it was a truly beautiful place. Indeed, it was Queen Elizabeth I who named it Head Corn because all she could see was the heads of corn in the rolling fields. And it's a pretty village and it was the kind of place where life ebbed and flowed at its own pace. I played a lot of tennis when I lived there. I went to a lovely school. And I think if I'm honest, I had a pretty good time. But there was a slight catch to all this because if you can't drive in Kent, to put it bluntly, you're fucked. And at least until that is, you can drive for yourself, which means you have to either get on the train to go somewhere. Um, London was about an hour away or other small villages. And, and your other option was to rely on the local taxi service, i.e. my dad, or the number 12 bus, which went either to Tenstone, where I went to school, or Maidstone, which was the nearest town to us. Now, Maidstone had the nearest cinema and by bus, it was about 40 minutes away, a slow, crawling journey that was supposed to come every hour, but that seemed even a little ambitious. And going to the, the Maystone Granada cinema was kind of a rite of passage for me and my friends, because not only was it going to the cinema, it was the first little glimpse of freedom that we got, that moment where your mum said you could go on your own or with a friend, which means she thought you could be trusted to do something without supervision. And I know I must have been at least 13, I think, when I first went to the cinema with a friend unaccompanied, because I know I saw True Lies at Maystone Granada, which was released in August 1994. And it was the scene of many treasured trips out. I will, I will never forget the smell of Joanne Evans' Coco Chanel perfume as we watched Apollo 13. As I debated whether or not to hold her hand, we were courting and it was early days, I might add. Or at the time, me and my mate Nina saw the trailer for the Star Wars Special Edition come on. And yes, I know the Special Editions weren't that, but hear me out. The trailer consisted of like a normal TV screen appearing before the whole screen became filled with shots of the new X-Wings and I was sold and it was the first time I was ever going to get to see it on the big screen. And before that there were even trips to Back to the Future Part 2 for someone's birthday and my dad taking me to watch Licence to Kill and Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. And what I consider to be the greatest trip to the cinema I ever had, which was of course when I went to go and watch Titanic with my then girlfriend, not Joe Evans, I only, might add that only lasted six months. And I didn't give a toss, it was Titanic. The first screening has never been bettered by any film. It's not my favourite film, of course, but it was legitimately the best trip to the cinema I have ever had. And for sure, the Granada was not the most glamorous of places. The carpet was a kind of rank burgundy colour. And my God, the concession stand seemed to cost a small fortune even then. But it had some other things going for it, like you were always shown to your seat by someone with a torch, which is a touch I really like and miss quite deeply. And when I used to go to it, there were three screens and I only ever recall seeing one in the main auditorium and possibly Starship Troopers in the third smaller screen. But this was not always the case because the Granada was once quite the place to go and watch a film. Sidney Bernstein was a mogul most famous for creating Granada Television, the Manchester-based TV production company famous for its weekly soap opera Coronation Street, and I would argue its greatest achievement being the Up series of documentaries. 
He worked with Alfred Hitchcock to form Transatlantic Pritchards, who he met in 1925 when Bernstein was the co-creator of the London Film Society, and the pair formed a lifelong friendship that would see the likes of Rope and Under Capricorn being produced under their partnership. A passionate lover of films, Bernstein was the first person to bring Russian filmmakers Eisenstein and Badunkin to the audiences in London during the 1920s, as well as sponsoring Eisenstein to go to Hollywood in the 1930s. His relevance in this story, however, is that Bernstein was also the creator of the Granada cinema chain. Born in 1899, Sidney Bernstein's father, Alexander, first forayed into the entertainment business in 1907 with building the music hall at the Empire Edmonton. Alexander was quick to realise that the public were developing an appetite for cinema. He purchased the Ye Old Paragon Music Hall in Mile End, London, which was then a 2,000-seat theatre that also showed films. His first purpose-built cinema was the Empire Ilford in 1913, and it became the first in a number of Empire cinemas that would be built throughout London. This was followed by another company, Film Agencies Limited, in, formed in 1916 that built and sold equipment and also booked and distributed films. Sidney joined film agencies by 1920 and was director and manager at some stage, developed a keen interest in supplying American filmmaking equipment to British producers. In order to understand the business and industry better, he travelled to America to look at the equipment that was being used and how it could be integrated into British cinema production. It was also where he discovered a huge movie palaces that were being built and an idea was born. Following his father's death in 1922, Sidney took over the family business, including the various music halls the family owned. Bernstein could see where popular culture was heading. Cinema was going to be big business and he wanted to be involved in every perspective. It was another for trip in 1922 where we visited the various picture palaces and was inspired by their design and build. A trip to Granada in Spain during his youth had had a profound impact on Bernstein and it wasn't long before he had a new idea for a cinema chain. Inspired by those American cinemas, Bernstein decided it was time for the UK to get in on the act. Bernstein had worked with architect Cecil Massey during the renovations of his music halls, and Massey was accused, along with Russian theatre director Theodor Kom Izajewski, and with Bernstein, the Granada cinema chain was born. And he insisted that these were not just going to be cinemas, they were going to be theatres. He believed that audiences would be attracted to the buildings, not the films, and he wanted patrons to marvel at these places. Some would have Art Deco exteriors, and the interiors would be neoclassical in design, which is where Kom Isajewski was brought in to do. Crucially, however, ticket prices would be affordable. Bernstein wanted these places to be temples of entertainment, and I think there is something very telling about this. It is an understanding that cinema is a medium for the masses, but it also it shows a respect for the medium. By creating these buildings that inspire wonder, that were accessible at affordable prices, Bernstein takes away elitism and makes us the audience member and the public feel unique, feel privileged to be in such a grand place. But crucially, it's where everyone can go. And it's easy to imagine the excitement of the punters, perhaps those even wearing their best clothes to go out in. And with that kind of comes a respect for what you are watching. It makes you behave in a certain way. And I love the idea that people were going to these places, would have been from all walks of life, sitting in a theatre that was 
architecture was a reflection of the gravitas and importance that the medium would have in people's lives. And I contrast to what I see now in cinemas where, and yes, I'm going to be a bit old manish here, but perhaps you just maybe the multiplex feels like a film commodity. And I just don't think we have the same respect for these places. And from architecturally from a standpoint, I think these buildings leave a lot to be be desired. I mean, like I can mention really the print works that I go to is a fairly soulless place on the inside. Obviously, it's the films that count. And in, indeed, home is, I think, very reflective of what the kind of the modern art house is like. It's more of a restaurant and a bar, really, than it is, is, is a cinema. I, I don't think it um, celebrates film perhaps as much as it does its pizza menu, but it's an incredibly popular building. And I think that's just a kind of the, the, a sign of the times, as it were. But anyway, back to the story. Bernstein began to search for locations for his theatres and he chose the Kent coastal town of Dover as to be the first one. The building was designed by Cecil Massey and Komaisko-Efjewski worked on the interior and Bernstein chose the name Granada because of that trip he had to Spain in his youth. He'd been inspired by the architecture, the ambience of the place and the culture and he decided that the name would add a kind of exoticism to the cinemas. And the Dover Granada's opening night was a sight to behold. Members of the public and dignitaries were transported to Dover in a special railway coach, the Grand Pullman, and the opening saw trumpets, speeches, and appearance by Bernstein and his designer and architect on stage. There was one screen, 1,717 seats, a marble staircase and an auditorium that had a Spanish Moorish theme and a, and a stage that had a huge proscenium arch, an orchestra pitch and a huge organ that would raise from the floor. The opening film was The Last of Mrs. Cheney and from 1930 to 1982 it was used as a cinema undergoing several changes of hands before becoming a nightclub until 2007 where it was bought by the pub chain Weatherspoons and yet work was never finished and by October 2014 the building had been completely demolished. And soon more Granadas began appearing in Walthamhoe and Tooting, and a chain was born, including in 1934, my hometown Maidstone's very own Granada. With a capacity of 1600, Maidstone Granada became the largest cinema in Maidstone at that time, which in 1934, they had three cinemas and the, this Granada was slightly different to the others. For this was the first of what was to be called the Standard Granada. And it was, of course, designed by um, Cecil Massey with Komai Sajewski designing the interior in an Italian Renaissance style with a large chandelier in the main auditorium. However, it was not protruding from a dome in the scene more. It was like a flat ceiling with an ornate design around it. It included an enormous Christie three-manual eight-rank organ and there'll be more on that later, and was celebrated by Bernstein as a very British achievement. He went at great lengths to highlight that all the labour and the materials bar the 15 tonnes of imported Italian marble had been made by British workers and tradepersons. It had a car park and a hugely popular bar and cafe. Opened in January 1934, it opened with the films Cuckoo in the Nest and Reunion in Vienna with organist Alex Taylor welcoming the guests in with music and of course Bernstein on stage to give an opening and address. 
The grandeur of the Maidstone Granada beggars beliefs into what the cinema would eventually come to look like. The auditorium was huge with an upper stool overlooking the stage. And it wasn't just a cinema, this was also to be used for shows and concerts. Indeed, everyone from the Rolling Stones to the Hugh to Adam Faith played there, which seems crazy to me. But it was the business, its main business was films and what a place it would have been to see them. Now, the Granada may have started off um, very opulent, but it's far from what I recall it became. Towards the end, it was a rather tatty, tiny bit smelling, quite dull building it became in later life when I got to know it. The building's decline began in 1968 when the theatre was flooded in a rainstorm and the organ console area was destroyed. But the theatre reopened a week later with only 650-seat upper stall open. And in 1971, it was closed for conversion. The lower stalls were converted into the Granada Bingo Club with the upper stalls, old cafe and bar, being effectively turned into a two-screen cinema. Now the Granada 1 and 2 opened in 26th of December 1971 with a 560 capacity cinema and a 90 seat screen. This was also the time that the organ was stripped from the building and was eventually shipped to Kelvin Grove High School in Brisbane, Australia, where it is still used to this day. And in 1974, a third screen was added by twinning the larger screen to provide three screens with capacities of 258, 259 and 90 and this would be the cinema that I would effectively know the Granada to be. In 1989 it was overtaken by the Canon Group, this changed hands to MGM in 1993 and then Virgin from 1995 to 1986 where it was overtaken by ABC until its closure in 1999. Its fate was effectively sealed in 1998 with the opening of the new Odeon and I don't recall ever going to it again. I think the last film I saw there must have been Sliding Doors in 1998 and that, I think that would seem about right. I, I can't quite recall but the building is still used for bingo to this day but the cinema section is still empty. A fire was started by vandals in 2018 but it did actually do little damage and people have suggested that the building being used for like pub or a youth club and nothing really has come about. It still kind of sits there empty and I wonder how it will end for the Granada cinema. If bingo goes out of fashion one could easily see it being sold off for apartments or something similar offices or whatever demands of a modern urban city um, urban center require and for me it is a place of such amazing me memories james bond indiana jones dates with girls day out with friends having to wait on to watch teletext to see what films would be playing and at what time and the slight apprehension sometimes when you would go there and the queue would be around the block and you weren't even sure if you were going to get in. I'm, I'm not even sure if that, that still happens now. And it's nice. I think I think nostalgia can be both a blessing and a curse. And and I have some of my happiest memories of that place. And I'm, I'm sure it has something to do with being young and unencumbered by mortgages and whatnot and just living the best life. And it's also, I think, a place where I came to love films. And yes, I go back to watching Titanic on the big screen was an experience that has never been bettered in terms of its impact on me. And what's more, I remember it for being a place where you could watch film on films and if you sat at the back of the cinema you could hear that magical noise of the film going through the projector and I used to do it regularly um, especially in the quieter moments of films I would love hearing that whirring and clicking going on and I would love for the building to be restored back to what it was 
I'm pretty certain that the catchment area of Maidstone would have enough punters to do a great trade in the revival cinema that replicated the grandeur of its original incarnation. But I doubt this will ever happen. Indeed, I think probably so much of it has changed. The building probably has very little of its original features still in place. And of course, it has a Friends Of page on Facebook and various people seem to be trying to kind of interested in trying to kind of save it. But I feel that the Maston Granada is very much a building that is on death row, slowly becoming more irrelevant and more invisible to those around it. And I'm not sure how long it's got before it just has become a pile of bricks and nothing more than a fading memory for a generation who came to enjoy watching films in it. But we can still hope. I mean, um, I've, I've looked at pictures of the inside um, that were taken by some ur urban explorers and it's very hard to see. You, you would need millions, I suppose, to kind of restore it back to what it was. And I don't know how much of the original features have been stripped out. I think the um, where the chandelier was, I, I do believe, I think some of the kind of the ornate work is still there. But the, the bottom where the bingo hall is, has got an artificial um, ceiling and all that type of stuff. So I, I just cannot see anything really that great happening there but so that was the history then of the Maidstone Granada and what film was I therefore going to pick well I managed to find a picture of the exterior from 1997 and I could just about make out the film that was playing which was Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park of the Lost World and I actually saw it at the Granada and hadn't catched up with the film in years so why not now, I maintain that the original Jurassic Park is a masterpiece of Hollywood filmmaking. It is a magical film in some respects, and everything I love about Steven Spielberg. It's scary to a point, it's daft, it's exciting, it has a gorgeous score by John Williams, and it's pretty much endlessly rewatchable. And of course, it was a huge box office success, so of course it had to get a sequel. And by God, I was surprised going back to The Lost World, because I remember not being that keen on it when I saw it, but I found this to be a truly terrible experience. Now sequels in my opinion need to do the following. And in first instance, they need to enrich the experience of the first. Blade Runner is a much better film because of Blade Runner 2049 and possibly, possibly even a better film, but that's for another day, I think. And secondly, I think the story should continue in a satisfying fashion. The Empire Strikes Back is a perfect example of this. You feel the characters have changed and the and the dynamics of the film have shifted, setting up another one. Thirdly, these films have to be good in their own right, not better, but I want a film that can stand up on its own. And I can make the case for something like 2010, the year we make content. It is vi vastly different from 2001, but it holds up on its own. It's not better than 2001, but it's its own thing. It's doing its own thing. And that's the kind of thing that interests me. It's gorgeous to look at, so I don't necessarily need to feel the compulsion to watch 2001 before I watch 2010. And The Lost World fails on every one of these levels. And I think firmly because the, the film has no idea other than to make money why it exists in the first place. And it's a film so creatively bankrupt that it's actually quite depressing. Now, Michael Crichton had never written a sequel before and he didn't want to either. But after the success of Jurassic Park, he was pressured to do so. And he wrote The Lost World, worried that the novel would simply be the same but different. And I think it's a very key to understanding how flat a film The Lost World is. It's clearly a novel and a film that has been, not been born from a great creative spark. Some creative impulse to move the story along, but instead is more or less a box-ticking exercise to appease entitled fans. 
and the story sees the reintroduction, uh, the introduction, sorry, of another island, close to the original island and the theme park, where essentially the dinos have been left to their own devices. And I'm not entirely sure how such a place has remained a secret. It's never really explained, but you soon realise no one cares anyway, because the whole purpose of this new island is to essentially replay the first film with more CGI. And we see the return of Dr. John Hammond, played by Richard Attenborough, and Dr. Ian Malcolm by Jeff Goldblum, whereupon Hammond casually informs him that his own nephew wants to go to the island to nick some of the dinosaurs to save the company iGen, and shock horror, Malcolm's girlfriend, Sarah, Julianne Moore, is there studying the dinosaurs. And of course, Ian has to go along with Nico and a filmmaker played by a young Vince Vaughn and Eddie Carr, an equipment guy who's just there to make up the numbers, I think, along with a load of big game hunters and various other dinosaur fodder that I can't really be bothered going into. Oh, and Ian's daughter, Vanessa, played by Kelly Curtis, has only hidden herself on a boat. What could possibly go wrong? Well, in this case, everything. The Lost World is a film that operates on the strange belief that you won't notice. And by that, I mean the following. You won't notice the film is essentially a retread of the first because everything you liked about the first is pleasant and correct. The dinosaurs, the T-Rex attack at night, the rain, the bad guys being chewed up, John Williams' score, the cute kid in peril, and the snappy dialogue of Jeff Goldblum with his sardonic delivery. What's supposed to happen is that you're supposed to just go along for the ride. That you forget that you have essentially bought a ticket to the same film. That somehow the audiovisual spectacle will hit all the buttons that the previous film did. Only it doesn't because what happens is this. You know exactly what is going, who is going to survive and exactly who is going to be eaten. And yes, there are some inventive moments. This is Spielberg, of course. Julianne Moore on The Breaking Glass has always been a nail biter for me for sure. And Spielberg invented the modern day Hollywood blockbuster with Jaws. I also think him and George Lucas are responsible for cheapening it. Anything Goes was the mantra of Temple of Doom. And that film's crushing stupidity can be seen in any number of big budget Hollywood outings. And the sequel has been one of the biggest casualties of this. Films are brands now where the name alone is the apparent draw. And I believe there was kind of like a cult-like attitude to them as well. Those Star Wars conventions in which people simply cheer and whoop at anything are actually very telling. The recent Star Wars sequels were utterly terrible, legitimately awful films, yet people's critical faculties seemed to abandon them because they were watching a Star Wars films. Ergo, that was all that mattered. The Last Jedi was celebrated because it did something to do with representation. People claimed to like it for this reason. Okay, fine, but let's not pretend it's actually a well-made or well-written film at all. And with something like Lost World, you're supposed to be happy because this film is providing you with an experience that you enjoyed in the first one. And whereas some will simply be happy to be back in the world of Jurassic Park, everyone else was left with a rather strange feeling that they are being duped, conned, because you know you are just watching a retread in a branded world. And with the Lost World, you simply roll your eyes at the contrivance of it all. And Kelly, along with her gymnastic skills, has been written in simply for one set piece. That is her entire purpose in this film. And when you watch it, you are totally aware of the fact that nothing of anything is actually happening. A boring box ticking exercise whereby good characters live and bad ones die. And the film tries to do something slightly different by taking the action back to civilization. But even this is crushingly boring distraction. That real reason exists to make it cack-handed comment on environmentalists and, and corporate greed. This being a Spielberg course, 
Spielberg film is of course competently directed and as I said before there seems some there are some nice scenes the dinosaurs running through the grass and that cracking glass again but let's not forget Steven Spielberg has done sequels before and they are typically rubbish Last Crusade is great but is an exception he's a genius when it comes to characters and making you care about them the Lost World just puts people in a situation where they have to escape or not as the case may be and the result is what it is a film that is set in the world of Jurassic Park that gives you more of what you think you want but you don't because I go back to Michael Crichton he never wanted to write this sequel he did it for the money and that's what this film is it's a film born of corporate greed that thinks it makes a point about this and then fails to see the irony that the only reason it's being made is so that Universal can make a ton load more of money and it's why no one talks about this film anymore it's why you never see it on some underrated sequels list or anything like it under no circumstances does this film have any replayability whatsoever and is a timely reminder that even the great directors can go so so far off the mark so that's going to be it for this episode of the 24 frames cast i hope you enjoyed it um i would welcome any suggestions for cinemas that you may remember that have now been torn down and you would like me to have a look at so please do get in contact you can email me at 24framescast at gmail.com um but other than that, that's going to be it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, as I said, stay safe from Omnicron and his friend Thanos, if they're out there. Uh, get your jabs. I've had three of mine, and um, I've recently started buying loads of Microsoft products. I don't know if it's something to do with the microchip Bill Gates has, in, has inserted into me, but um, it's certainly been an interesting few weeks. So many thanks for listening, and I'll be in contact soon. Bye.